Chapter 17 of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Rando. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. W. M. Thackeray's Text. 1. That text is worth a million pounds exclaimed goldsmith's vicar of wakefield thackeray thought so too he never actually put a price upon it but he made it perfectly clear that he regarded it as invaluable every reader of the newcombs knows thackeray's text colonel newcomb is thackeray's dream man his vision splendid his beckoning ideal it is because thackeray took such pains to weave into the character of thomas newcomb the simplicities and sublimities of his own faith that the colonel has taken his place as the grand old man of english fiction he is as somebody has said the typical gentleman perfect in all points and parts never once insipid or dull and as we watch him grow old we feel for him the affectionate solicitude that we cherish for a dear relation or an honored friend he never seems more noble than when he stands unconquered amidst the calamities that overwhelm him at the last. In age and feebleness, he is doomed to witness the shipwreck of his fortunes. Night falls upon him, not serene and starlit, but with black storm and raging tempest. Yet in the darkest hour that ever closes round him, he stands with spirit unbroken and faith unruffled, resting serenely in the shelter of a psalm in his poverty a poverty in which there is no tinge of shame he sits among the black-coated pensioners of the hospital of Greyfriars. but with grateful heart and shining face he sets his seal to the testimony that he reads in the book that lies open on his knee the steps of a good man are ordered by the lord though he fall he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. His dear old head, says Arthur Pendennis, who, horrified at seeing him there, speedily effected his deliverance. His dear old head was bent down over the book, but there was no mistaking him. He wore the black gown of the pensioners, but his order of the bath was on his breast. It seemed to Arthur an irony that the steps of this good man had been ordered of the Lord to an almshouse. Impatient to reach his old friend, he at length succeeded in doing so. He found him in the little room which, though severely plain, was neat and comfortable, and on the table which was laid for tea was the old man's Bible with his spectacles beside it. "'Don't be agitated, Arthur, my boy,' exclaimed the old man soothingly. "'I am very happy. I have good quarters, good food, good light, good fire, and good friends. Blessed be God, my dear, kind young friend. I am as happy as the day is long.' Arthur thought, he tells us, of the psalm that he had heard the old man singing. "'I have been young, and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread.' He stepped to the table and turned the pages of the old man's Bible till he found it. 
the colonel rose, laid a kind, trembling hand upon Arthur's shoulder, and with a smile bent over the volume. And who, Arthur asked, could behold that smile without adoring the grace that had achieved so notable and beautiful a triumph? 2. But in admiring Colonel Newcomb, we must not lose sight of Thackeray. We are too prone to extol the creation and forget the creator. In giving us this heroic and impressive picture of Colonel Newcomb, Thackeray was simply painting a wonderfully revealing portrait of his own soul. At least he was painting a portrait of his own soul as he would have liked his soul to be. You may judge a man by his ideals, and Colonel Newcomb is Thackeray's. Thackeray brought Colonel Newcomb into existence that, at his feet, we might all learn to be trustful and brave. I like to think, the novelist once said, that my books have been written by a God-loving man. Their morality, the vanity of everything but love and goodness, is but a reflection of the teaching of our Lord. When Thackeray knew that his end was near, he was visited by an intimate friend, Mr. Singh, who was leaving England for some years. I want to tell you, said Thackeray, that I shall never see you again. I feel that I am doomed. I know that this will grieve you. But look in that book, and you will find something that, I am sure, will please and comfort you. The something was a written prayer in which he prayed that he might never write a word inconsistent with the love of God or the love of man, that he might never propagate his own prejudices or pander to those of others, that he might always speak the truth with his pen, and that he might never be actuated by love of greed. And I particularly remember, Mr. Singh tells us, that the prayer wound up with the words, For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, it was in the spirit of that prayer, and in answer to it, that Colonel Newcomb's name appeared upon the pages of English literature. It is eminently characteristic of Thackeray that it is from the Bible that, in the day of his calamity, old Colonel Newcomb derives courage and hope. In all Thackeray's books, that principle holds true. Whenever any of the characters find themselves faced by some stupendous crisis, a crisis of temporal disaster or a crisis of spiritual despair, it is invariably from the inspired pages of Scripture that there comes the word of pardon or direction or cheer. It would be easy, as Sir Alfred Dale, the late vice-chancellor of Leeds University, has finally said, it would be easy to find a score of passages in which Thackeray caught his inspiration from gospel or from psalm. But there is one passage in which he reveals himself unconsciously, and unconscious revelations are the surest. You remember the story of George Warrington in Pendennis, the young man who has made shipwreck and has to atone for a single act of folly by a life without ambition, without love, and almost without hope. He is left to face it all alone, alone with the flowers that recall the vision of joy that has come and passed him by, and with the Bible that a grateful mother has left as a parting gift. The fading flowers and the unfading book, along with them, along with the night. And, Thackeray adds, the morning found him still reading in its awful pages 
in which so many stricken hearts, in which so many tender and faithful souls have found comfort under calamity and refuge and hope in affliction. Comfort under calamity, refuge and hope in affliction. The words sum up with perfect accuracy the situation in which old Colonel Newcomb found himself when the text came to his aid at Grey Friars. I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. 3. Now in my own copy of the Newcombs, there is an introductory essay on Thackeray and his work. In the course of his critique, the writer compares Thackeray first with Oliver Goldsmith and then with Sir Walter Scott. For my present purpose, the comparison is extremely pertinent for both Goldsmith and Scott knew the value of the words that so comforted the old colonel. I have been young, and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Thackeray, because of his reverent affection for the words, made them Colonel Newcomb's text. Goldsmith, because of his reverent affection for the words, made them the vicar of Wakefield's text. Sir Walter Scott, because of his reverent affection for the words, made them Jeanie Dean's text. Like Colonel Newcomb, the vicar of Wakefield has sustained the shipwreck of his fortune. Out of 14,000 pounds, he says, we had but 400 remaining. My chief attention, therefore, was to bring down the pride of my family to their circumstances, for I well knew that aspiring beggary is wretchedness itself. As my oldest son was bred a scholar, I determined to send him to town where his abilities might contribute to our support and his own. The separation of friends and families is, perhaps, one of the most distressful circumstances attendant on penury. The day soon arrived on which we were to disperse for the first time. My son, after taking leave of his mother and the rest, who mingled their tears with their kisses, came to ask a blessing from me. This I gave him from my heart, for, added to five guineas, this was all the patrimony I had now to bestow. You are going, my boy, cried I, to London on foot. Take from me this staff and take too this book. It will be your comfort on the way. These two lines in it are worth a million. I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Let this be your consolation as you travel on. I have often wondered how that paragraph found its way into the Vicar of Wakefield. No other English classic was penned under such squalid and degrading conditions as those which marked the production of Goldsmith's masterpiece. Dr. Johnson has made the episode historic. I received one morning, he says, a message from poor Goldsmith that he was in great distress, and, as it was not in his power to come to me, he begged that I would come to him as soon as possible. I sent him a guinea and promised to come to him directly. I accordingly went as soon as I was dressed and found that, his rent being sadly in arrear, his landlady had placed him under arrest. I asked him to be calm and began to talk to him of the means by which he might be extricated. 
He then told me that he had a novel ready for the press, which he produced. I looked into it and saw its merits, told the landlady I should soon return, and, having gone to the bookseller, sold it for sixty pounds. That novel was The Vicar of Wakefield. And here, embedded in that novel, is the text. When in his narrow attic, Goldsmith penned that paragraph about the text. Was he recalling some such experience that befell himself on the day on which he left his father's home? His father, like the vicar of Wakefield, was a country minister in reduced circumstances. He himself had left home in much the same way as George Primrose in the story. Did Oliver Goldsmith's father send him out into the world with that text, telling him that it was worth a million? Did Goldsmith ponder it in his poverty? And did the text rush back upon his mind when Dr. Johnson returned from the booksellers with the sixty golden coins? I cannot say for certain, but all the circumstances of the case point in that direction. So much for Oliver Goldsmith, we must turn to Sir Walter Scott. And even Sir Walter Scott never wrote a tenderer idol of Scottish life than that which we all cherish in the heart of Midlothian. Jeanie Dings has made up her mind to tramp all the way from Edinburgh to London to plead with the king and queen for the life of Effie, her sister. It happens that at the moment of her projected departure, her father, old David Dings, and her lover, Reuben Butler, are in circumstances of urgent necessity and distress. Effie languishes in a felon's cell. It breaks her heart to leave them all in such a plight, yet an appeal to the king and queen seems to her the only way of deliverance. Before setting out on her long journey, she calls on her lover to say goodbye. She asks for some papers, and whilst he's away getting them, she hurriedly marks with his Calvin pen a passage in his Bible. I have marked a scripture that will be useful to us bathe, she told him a few moments afterwards, and you must take the trouble, Reuben, to write out the words and send them to my father. What words were they? As soon as Jeanie had gone, Sir Walter tells us Butler flew to the Bible, the last book she had touched, and poured eagerly over the text that she had underlined. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Butler read the words again and again, and as he did so, made it the supreme object of his ambition to attain to Jeanie's devout firmness and noble confidence. 4. Now I have cited these pages from the classics not because of their association with Colonel Newcomb, the vicar of Wakefield, and Jeanie Deans, but because of their association with Thackeray, Goldsmith, and Scott. The text must have meant something to Thackeray, or he would never have made it Colonel Newcomb's text. It must have meant something to Sir Walter Scott, or he would never have made it Jeanie Deans' text. It must have meant something to Oliver Goldsmith, or he would never have made the vicar of Wakefield tell his son that the words were worth a million pounds. But, after all, I could easily have dispensed with fiction. I could have called two other witnesses, for everybody who has read his last journals 
knows how often David Livingstone pillowed his fevered head on the 37th Psalm. As he made his way along those interminable slave tracks, littered with the bones of the victims who had fallen, as he tossed in his delirium among the swamps and bogs of the watershed, as he faced death at the hands of hostile and infuriated savages, and as he endured untold agonies inflicted upon him by poisonous insects, venomous reptiles, and wild beasts, he found one ceaseless fountain of inspiration and comfort. He would never be forsaken. He would never lack bread. I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. My other witness would have been a covenanter, and one of the noblest of the covenanters. Robert Bailey of Jerviswood, the Algernon Sidney of Scotland, was the great-grandson of John Knox. You have men of noble spirit in Scotland, wrote Dr. John Owen. But Mr. Bailey of Jerviswood possesses the greatest abilities I ever met with. He was publicly hanged at the Market Cross of Edinburgh on Christmas Eve, 1684. His body was submitted to every indignity, and his property was confiscated and forfeited to the crown. Before being led to the scaffold, he sent for his son and told him that the bitterest ingredient in his anguish was the fact that he was being compelled to leave his family penniless. But, he added, God's promises are sure, and I am confident that the testimony of David will be verified. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. 5. Thackeray was a tremendous believer in the fatherly love of God. He had implicit and unwavering confidence in the sheltering and protecting care that God is able to exercise for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. I particularly notice, says Mr. Singh, that he said, for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. He thought it the loveliest thing in religion that God allows himself to be called our Father. Our Father for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Dr. John Brown tells how one beautiful Sunday evening, Thackeray went for a walk with two friends in one of the most charming suburbs of Edinburgh. The sky was a sea of glory. The hills lay bathed in amethystine splendor. It was such a sunset as one never forgets. The northwest end of Corstorfing Hill, with its trees and rocks, lay in the heart of this pure radiance, and there a wooden crane, used in the granary below, was so placed as to assume the figure of a cross. There it was, unmistakably lifted up against the crystalline sky. All three gazed at it silently. Suddenly, Thackeray gave utterance, in a gentle and tremulous voice, to what all were feeling. Calvary, he said, Calvary. The friends walked on in silence and then turned to other things. But all that evening, Thackeray was very gentle and serious, speaking as he seldom did, of divine things, of death, of sin, of eternity, and of salvation. 
expressing his simple faith in God and in his Savior. The cross, Calvary, death, sin, salvation, eternity, the fatherly love of God for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Such a faith, Goldsmith says, is worth a million pounds, and certainly nobody who has once made it his own would dream of parting with it at that price. End of chapter 17